Hi, welcome to the inaugural episode of the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. Today, we're going to talk about my favorite period in Korean history, the military coup of 1170. Why is this my favorite? Because the medieval era for all societies throughout the world depends so fully on peasants and lowborns meekly accepting their lot due to fate or God or just brute force. But during this period, we get to see what happens when that rigid social structure is absolutely ripped apart. For example, what happens when a son of slaves takes control of the country? In short, the entire country uprises. I'm talking everyone from slaves to peasants to even monks. To top it all off, this period begins as a domestic squabble and ends with a foreign invasion. And not just any foreign invasion, but a historic, once-in-a-lifetime, world-famous invasion, the invasion of Genghis Khan himself. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's start at the beginning. It's around September 1170. The head of the palace guard, General Zheng Jungbu, along with executive captains Yi Go and Yi Ribang, stormed the palace in the capital, Gegyeong. Their mission is to overthrow King Yi Zhong and take control of the country. This is written in the Goryosa. As soon as the king entered the gate and his high officials were about to retire, Yi Go and others killed In Jongshik and Yi Bokgi at the gate with their own hands. Han No, relying on his close relationship to the eunuchs, hid inside the royal quarters under the king's bed. The king, greatly alarmed, sent his eunuch Wang Guangchi to stop him. Shortly afterward, transmitter Yi Setong and others, along with the accompanying civil officials, functionaries, and eunuchs, all met tragedy. Their corpses were piled as high as a mountain. It was a bloodbath at the highest ranks. When the smoke clears, the following officials are killed or dismissed. Six members of the Security Council, three members of the Ministry of Military Affairs, four former military commissioners, three of the 11 state councillors, nine men in the lower ranks of the Security Council and Royal Secretariat Chancellery. Even the Institute of Astronomical Observation, which was in charge of reporting celestial occurrences and remonstrances through the observation of natural events, had three of its members dismissed. The three leaders then installed the deposed king's brother, Myeongjong, on the throne. They banished King Uijong to Gaje Island, which is this tiny island way far away on the southeastern tip near Busan, away from the powers in the capital. The trio ruled the state, or tried to, using the newly installed Council of Generals. In a sense, this council replaced the General Council as a principal ruling body of the country. Now imagine this. A group of military officers have deposed the king of the country and killed all his cronies at court. Let me ask you, how do you think it went for them afterwards? Well, I think about this great scene in the movie The Bounty, which is a 1984 film about the famous mutiny of the British ship Bounty. The mean but upright captain, played by Anthony Hopkins, is thrown off his own ship by his first mate, played by a young Mel Gibson. As Hopkins is put on a dinghy and pushed off the ship, he asks, 
Do you really think you'll be able to command this rabble? And Mel replies, I'll do my best. And Hawkins replies, Well, I did my best, and I had the authority of the law. You're a dead man, Fletcher. Well, the same thing happened to these three officers. They knew that the king was just too valuable to kill, so they just banished him. But unlike the mutineers of the bounty, these guys not only were without the authority of the law, but without the cultural, religious, spiritual authority of the monarch. Things rapidly spiraled downward. There was infighting among all the military officers. You can imagine the kind of suspicion that occurs when a bunch of outlaws decides to take down the establishment. To be clear, they didn't immediately replace the entire, entire government with military. As Edward Schultz writes in his excellent book, Generals and Scholars, which I heavily draw upon in this episode, for the first five years after the coup in 1170, there are around 44 men identified as those who probably dominated the government at the time. Of these, only 20% were known to have been in the military. Later, from 1175 to 1196, that number would swell to around 34%. But in the beginning, instead of replacing all the civilians with military officers, the leaders of the coup just got rid of the existing civilian bureaucrats who were not loyal to their cause with ones who were. Civilians continued to monopolize such offices as the Ministry of Rights, the Royal Secretariat Chancellery, and the Office of Examiner. Of the three leaders of the coup, only Zheng Jungbu was a general. The other two, Yi Ibang and Yi Go, were actually just executive captains or senior 8th grade officers. In fact, these two younger upstarts were the ones who elicited Zheng Jungbu to join their cause and bring his network. These two upstarts rapidly lost control of themselves. Within four months of the coup, Igo had killed several military leaders who had criticized his behavior. Immediately after this, Yi Ibang killed Igo. Four months later, Yi Ibang killed another of the coup's leaders, Che Won. The surviving two of the three, Zhang Jungbu and Yi Ibang, concluded a friendship pact, basically promising not to kill each other. But even that didn't last long, because four years later, in 1176, Zhang Jungbu's son Gyun killed Yi Ibang. So six years after the coup, two of the three leaders of the coup, the two main instigators, are dead. But the bloodbath wasn't over. A year later, a young 20-something general named Gyeong Daesung killed Zhang Jungbu and his son Gyun. Gyeong was so angry about the failures of the military leadership and promised to clean up the government. Within five years, he himself was dead of what the historians say was stress and anxiety. So let's take stock here. By 1177, just seven years after the coup, all three of the leaders are assassinated, some by each other. Even the guy who replaced them, Gyeong Dezung, was dead. However, in his short reign, he did give us the Dobang. The Dobang are now mostly known as a deadly fighting force of the later Goryeo period. They were an elite army unit, sometimes of skilled cavalry, who were responsible for fending off the multitude of northerners, including the Gitan, Jurchen, and Mongols. Historians think that the Dobang first started out as a personal guard of Gyeong. After he killed Zhang Jungbu, the histories note that, quote, 
In fear, he summoned a suicide squad of some 110 people and stationed them at his house. Calling them the Dobang, he used them as a personal guard. In fact, during this military era, many generals began to raise units of personal bodyguards numbering in the dozens. It's not surprising considering all the infighting and deaths. These private military units became extremely loyal to their leaders, not least of all because if the leader was killed, usually all his men were too. Gyeong, for example, had his Dobang guard sleep on alternating days at his house. He'd provide them with blankets and pillows so that they could sleep there, and even slept under the same blankets sometimes to show his commitment to them. These private military units are somewhat reminiscent of the samurai in Japan. So after the death of the three principal coup leaders, Gyeong himself dies, which brings us to one of the most interesting men of that period, Yi Ui Min. Only in such a chaotic environment would someone like he be able to rise to the very top of the country. Yi Ui Min was the son of a slave. The histories relate that he was a man of imposing physical size and strength. The son of a salt trader and a temple servant, he was born before the coup during King Uijong's reign, when he gained the notice of the king and rapidly advanced through the capital guard to reach the rank of sub-colonel, or senior 7th grade. With the military coup, he advanced to senior colonel, or senior 5th grade, and then to general. Now, before I continue, I have to disclose that I've not found a ton of material on Yi Min in English. What does exist seems exaggerated. Accounts definitely make him out to be a sort of monster, which is a bit rich considering that no one at the time was an angel. I mean, we're talking about generals, all of them noble-born, who murdered each other indiscriminately for power. And suddenly, this former slave is a bad guy? So, let's take everything that I that I'm about to say next with a grain of salt. Three years after the coup in 1173, an official named Gim Bodang attempted to reinstate the exiled King Ui Jong back to the throne. Zhang Jungbu, who was running the country at the time, asked the young Ui Min to bring the king back to the capital. Ui Min killed the king en route in his hometown of Gyeongju an area in the southeast of Korea, just north of Busan. Apparently, he killed the king with his bare hands by breaking his spine. Then he rolled the king's body up into a carpet and threw it into a lake. Meanwhile, Gyeong, the founder of the Dobang and murderer of Zhang Jungbu, was in charge. Since Lee Min was a friend of Zhang, he had to lie low for a while, which he did by going back to his hometown of Gyeongju. As soon as Gyeong died, Yi Uyimin jumped to power. By the way, the reason why so many historical figures come from the town of or city of Gyeongju is that Gyeongju was once the capital of Shila, one of the three kingdoms. And so it was very historically significant and a seat of power for what is what has traditionally been a very economically rich part of the country, um, basically because of all the of the agricultural land the rich agricultural land that exists in the southeast of Korea, as opposed to kind of the northern uh, northern parts of Korea, which which are closer to kind of rocky and mountainy and and more more aligned with uh, the northerners in the steppes. In fact, apparently after Gyeong's death, 
King Myeongjong was scared that Yi Eumin would stay in the wealthy Gyeongju province and cause a rebellion, so he welcomed him back to the capital. With that welcome, Yi Eumin returned to the capital, seized control of the country, and for the next 12 years, from 1184 to 1196, plundered the country and the capital alongside his sons. Unlike his predecessors, he brushed aside the Council of Generals. He apparently physically threatened King, King Myeongjong to impose his will on him. In 1196, Yi Eumin himself was assassinated by yet another general. This general's name is Che Chunghan, and he would go down as one of the most important figures in Korean history. We'll cover him and his reign in the next episode. So let's take a look back for a second. In just 26 years, from 1170 to 1196, we ha- we've had a king killed, multiple generals assassinated, and control of the country has changed hands at least three times. How do you think that was affecting the rest of the country? Not surprisingly, the rest of the country was spiraling out of control. Without a strong center, the provinces had to fend for themselves. Each of the military dictators, Jung Jungbu, Gyeong Dezung, Yi Eumin, were too busy trying to protect their own backs, and many of them were trying to enrich themselves while they were at the till. So far, we've talked about the capital and the upper crust of society. But what's happening to the rest of the country? Well, the rest of the country plunges into chaos. For practical reasons, taxes are not being collected properly, and the northern borders, so important against protecting against barbarians from the north, are not being guarded properly. And in the south, provincial governments such as Gyeongsan-do, where Gyeongju is, are on the verge of seceding from the central government. But the most interesting thing is happening more on an individual level. As peasants, slaves, and aristocrats alike hear that the former son of slaves has ascended to the top of the government, pandemonium breaks out. Before we get into that, let's talk about the Gregoria class system. We'll cover this subject in more depth in a separate episode, but I wanted to point out a few things. Broadly speaking, there were four classes in Korea at the time. The royalty, or wangjok, the aristocrats, yangban, peasants, sangmin, and then the lowborn, chunmin. Let's talk about the difference between those last two classes, the peasants and the lowborn. This may be obvious to some of you, but it wasn't to me in the beginning. I often make the mistake of lump-summing the working class with the poor. And judging from recent presidential elections here in America, I, I don't think I'm alone in this, so it's definitely worth covering. So what happened in Goryeo will make that distinction clearer, and it will also probably remind you a lot about some of our modern-day social problems. The Sangmin, that is, the, the working class, and the Chunmin, or the lowborn, are not only very different classes, but often in conflict with each other. Among the lowborn were the slaves and a group of people called the Baekjong. Now, slaves are pretty self-explanatory. I mean, there's there's some subtle distinctions that apply to Korea and basically the world in general um, that doesn't apply to, to American slavery, which is an extremely um, particular brand. But we, we won't go into the details of that. 
the baekjang, which you'll hear me mention over and over again, are a very special designation. Baekjang literally means blank obligation or someone without an obligation to the state. You might even say that they were stateless or without citizenship. I mean, at least a slave had a role in society, but Baekjang didn't even have that as far as the state was concerned. You'll recognize the grievances of some of the working class or the Sangmin. First of all, what is their role? Well, they do all the most important work of the country. They grow the food, so they're the farmers. They participate in massive civil projects such as roads and dams. They pay most of the taxes. And when the military needs soldiers, they provide their sons. The one thing they don't have is social mobility. Like the serfs of Europe, they basically accept that their lives will be poor and miserable. They can't attend school or get a proper education, and neither can their children or any of their descendants. They are told constantly that the royalty rules by the mandate of heaven. They are told that the royalty are divine, and thus their bloodlines are divine. Who knows if any of them actually believe in that? But the bottom line is that as long as the royalty stayed in their lane, they would stay in theirs. The Sangmin um, had two big consolations. The first is that, at least according to rules, the royalty and the aristocrats recognize them as a backbone of society. Society, In fact, Confucius recognizes the working class as such. The working class know that as long as they fill their role, the rulers will more or less take care of their basic needs. The second consolation that is that, as low as they are, the Sangmin are at least higher than the Chunmin. Unlike the slaves in the Baekjang, the Sangmin have their citizenship badge. They are legitimate, valuable, permanent members of society. But the military coup broke all of that down. Suddenly, the social structure, based on Confucianism, and also the idea that the king has a mandate of heaven, completely breaks down. What happens when Yi Eimin, the son of slaves, suddenly has control of the country? How do you think the average working class citizen feels about that? Peasants, angry that a slave can rise above them, organize and revolt against the state all over the country. Now, on the other side, slaves got a tremendous boost of confidence, and not just from Yi Eimin's rise to power. Because during the coup, there were several low-born military officers who found themselves promoted to the seat of power, including the Council of Generals. But Yi Eimin's ascension to the supreme commander role, short-lived as it was, was a final straw to break the camel's back. The citizens of the country lost all faith in the traditional rules of society, and the, and the result was chaos. Now, we'll go into more detail about the uprisings and rebellions that happened all across the country during this period. Um, we'll talk about it when we talk about Che Chungan, mainly because the documentation of those social uprisings are better during that period, at least from what I've read. But it's a fascinating breakdown of social order. So why did the military coup happen? I can think of four reasons. Number one, the king had gotten too fat and lazy off of the riches of the country and began to callously neglect his duties to the country. Number two, 
the king had surrounded himself with sycophants and hangers-on, thereby insulating himself from those who hated him. Number three, over the past century, land and other rights were stripped from military officers. And number four, the final straw was that all these factors culminated in some very public humiliations of prominent military officials. Let's cover these one by one. So number one, excesses of the court. How did the king become so spoiled and isolated from the, re from the real world? Let's briefly recap what happened before the coup. Before the founding of Goryeo in 918, Korea went through a bloody warring period in which the three disparate kingdoms of Shila, Goguryeo, and Baekje fought for control. By the time of the military coup, roughly 250 years had passed since Goryeo's founding. Compared to, the, compared to the Three Kingdoms period, it was a time of relative prosperity and peace. But there were periods of war. For example, Goryeo had fought off some very dangerous incursions by Gitan in the 11th century. But the military coup of 1170 actually was preceded by what's commonly known as the Golden Age of Goryeo Song Relations. This describes the special relationship that Goryeo had with the greatest civilization in the world at the time, the Song Dynasty, aka China. And just as a summary, three of the four of China's greatest inventions occurred during the Song period. The invention of the compass, gunpowder, and printing. The fourth being paper, which was invented much earlier. We'll go into detail of that period in another episode, but suffice it to say that trade between Goryeo and Song during the period of around 1078 to 1170 was extremely favorable to both nations. The Song court lavished Goryeo with enormous gifts of books, musical instruments, silks, and other things that helped Goryeo itself become a very sophisticated and cultured society. King Uijong exercised a fair amount of excess, again from the Goryosa. The king went to Inji Pavilion, also known as Gyeongyang Pavilion. He presented a poem that read, quote, In a dream I heard of a truly happy place, the hermitage under Puso Mountain. Accordingly, the king had pavilions constructed there and decorated them. With palace attendants, he got drunk daily and enjoyed himself, having no concern for state affairs. The censorate requested that he desist, but the king, using his poem, would immediately explain his dream to refute them. After this, the censors were silent. You can see from this record how Goryeo earned its reputation for having kept very fair, detailed records of the monarch. Normally, medieval records are written so that they flattered the kings of the day. But Goryeo is an exception in, the, in, in that the recorders of history were not beholden to the king. So, the king's strengths and weaknesses are recorded in a relatively objective manner. What you can also learn from this quote is how independently run the censorate was during that time. In fact, it was during this time that the kingdom's censorate had reached full maturity and sought to exercise as much power as it could by rendering judgment against the king. For example, the censorate repeatedly criticized the king's enjoyment of gyokku, or a kind of polo, a sport inherited from the steppes up north, until he gave it up. Unfortunately, they weren't as successful with his other excesses. 
Li Zhong continued to live a life of excess, enriching the civil bureaucrats and eunuchs at court, who then catered to his every whim. This insulated the king from reality as well as his duties to serve the country. Among others, many military officials observed such behavior with increasing dismay. Combined with the king's excesses, there was a gradual process to strip the military of its power. You might say that this process started from the beginning of Goryeo. First of all, in the Goryeo class system, military officers were officially part of the aristocracy or Yangban class. In a sense, the civil bureaucrats and the military officers were two branches of the same. But over time, the civilians gained power over the soldiers, probably because of the extended peace of the 11th and 12th century. And remember, Goryeo was founded by a military officer in 918 by Wang Gun, himself a military commander. But of course, as what usually happens, Wang Gun and his military successors recognized the danger of the military and thus instituted a strong civil bureaucracy borrowing from the Tang Dynasty of China. Ironically, it's this purposeful switch to take power away from the military that contributed to the military coup of 1170, because the stripping away of power and land by the civil aristocracy contributed to increased resistance by the military. The irony is that the military remained as critical as ever, was the golden age of Goryeo's song a relatively peaceful one? Yes, it was mostly peaceful and prosperous. But there were serious foreign invasions and internal rebellions that required the military. During that entire period, Goryeo was attacked by Gitan multiple times. Each time, the military was successful in fending them off, often in spectacular fashion. So how terrible was it that instead of the military getting their credit, the civil bureaucrats got it all. Imagine if you're a military general and you come from a, a proud tradition of military officials and you've studied the best Chinese text about the art of war and you've given yourself to the country and you've fended off some of the nastiest invaders ever and you've risked your life and the lives of your men on the battlefield and still the glories of the victories are given to the civilians who were put in charge of you. That happened for decades before the coup. Just a, f just a few examples. The civilian leader Yun Guan was given credit over winning over the Jin in 1107. In 1135, the monk Myojang from Sogyang leads a famous revolution in the north against the Goryeo king, citing too much Chinese influence via Confucius. You can imagine how how really serious this insurrection was by the fact that it took the military nearly a year to end it all. And yet the credit goes to the famed statesman and author, Kim Bushik. So you can imagine all the military silently stewing over these injustices over the decades. Now, the final nail in the coffin for the military coup was the horrendous public humiliation that the military suffered at the hands of the civil bureaucrats. And not just the civil bureaucrats, but even some of the eunuchs got involved in, in humiliating the military, at least some eunuchs associated with the king. Eunuchs had some power because they were close to the king, but there's no way that in a Confucian order they would have outranked military officers. They definitely weren't part of the aristocrats, and 
at times they, they just happen to have power because of their proximity to the king. So imagine how horrible it is to be a military officer of noble birth being ridiculed and made fun of by some powerless eunuchs. It's pretty bad. Probably the depth of the humiliation is recorded by the dynastic records when Zhang Jungbu, yeah, the same general that led the military coup in the first place, was severely slighted at a party when, as a prank, a young civilian official lit his beard on fire. The dynastic records also record another event. On a royal excursion, a civilian official's horse lost its footing, causing one of his stray arrows to fall near the royal coach. Rather than accept responsibility for the mishap, this civilian official just remained silent and allowed the king to think that his military escort had been the one to actually attempt, make an attempt on his life. So pretty much every military officer within the proximity of that coach on that day was banished from the kingdom. How can we view this military coup in the context of the world? In a sense, the military coup couldn't have happened at a worse time in Goryeo's history. In 1231, Genghis Khan would invade Korea when it, when it, when it was at its most vulnerable time. In fact, the Mongols were famous for sending spies into foreign territories years in advance of invading them. The Mongols, I would say, were not only the fiercest warriors, but probably the most organized in terms of gathering intelligence. They would have spies learn the local customs and the language and blend into a country and live there, sometimes for even years, passing information back. Um, a lot of times the Mongols used their, their traders and their merchants to pass this information back and forth. So given that Goryeo's proximity to Karakorum was pretty close, you have to assume that Genghis must have been keeping very close tabs on the political situation of Goryeo at the time. He must have known about pretty much every change of, uh, change of control and uh, the disaster that was happening at the top amongst the military. Now, not only that, Goryeo's allegiance to either the Jin Empire to the north or to, or to the Song in the, in the west greatly affected the decisions of each of these nations, and not to mention all the, all the tribal nations that existed outside of these empires. Having said that, Goryeo's military coup is not unique. We only need to look at Goryeo's closest neighbors, the Chinese and the Japanese. Japan famously faced the same problem non, not long after Korea, uh, Korea. In fact, you might say that their, their kind of military coup, um, what we know as a shogunate period, happened almost concurrently with Korea's military coup. Like the Koreans, the Japanese modeled their civil bureaucracy on the Tang model, model of China, in which the central imperial court doled out power to the regional bureaucrats. Eventually, the provincial leaders in Japan gained more power, including military conscription, which then led to the end of the Heian era, era and the start of the Kamakura era, or the Shogun era, in 1218. Unlike Goryeo, Japan faced a battle between two would-be regions, the Taira and the Minamoto. Taira pursued a royalist agenda, 
seeking to keep the existing aristocracy and attempting to take control of the throne via its relationship to the throne. Minamoto, however, had a much more revolutionary idea. He decided to promise provincial warlords control of their own lands in exchange for joining him. This political philosophy incentivized many local warlords to join Minamoto. And that's how Minamoto was able to gain, gain advantage over the Taira and eventually control the throne. Unlike Goryo, Minamoto's establishment of his Bakufu government in Kamakura, away from Kyoto, had lasting power because it remained just a domestic issue. After all, Japan is an island, so when they have a domestic dispute, it's very rare for, at least during this period of time, for any outside forces to interfere. I mean, maybe the Goryeo military regents could have kept power as well and maybe extended their own kind of form of the shogun era. But unfortunately, Goryeo shares a border. And not just any border, but a border with, you know, half a continent full of some of the most dangerous tribal warriors in all the world. Namely, the Mongols and all the related tribes, including the Gitan and the Malgal and the the Jurchens. All of them were, all of them were pretty similar in the way they organized and fought. So Genghis Khan put an end to Goryeo's military rule pretty decisively. Not surprisingly, Tang itself in China was taken down by this very military problem, except much earlier in the 10th century. At the time, the imperial government granted increased powers to the Jidashi, or the regional military governors. And long story short, this basically ushered in the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period, which is basically when all of China was split into these regional kingdoms again, mainly because of these these kind of these military leaders. How it happened in Korea is a bit different. Yes, the military did take down the imperial court, but it didn't happen in the provinces. Instead, it was the military leaders in the capital that were reacting to what they perceived as injustice at the hands of a corrupt civil bureaucracy and a corrupt king. So that concludes our coverage of the military coup of Korea from 1170 to 1196. In our next episode, we'll talk about Che Chungan, the one military dictator who succeeded in keeping power long enough to pass down to his sons and grandsons. We'll see why he succeeded where all the other military dictators didn't. Thanks for listening. Hey,